Hello and welcome to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today. Your co-hosts, Valian Likely and Catherine Lotzbeach. Welcome back to episode 14. We are excited to be rolling past Thanksgiving and on our way to Christmas. Uh, this week, we have a very special guest, uh, Mr. Damian Mason. Catherine, would you like to introduce our guest? Yeah, so Damian Mason and I go back a little ways. Um, I first heard him speak when I worked for a large animal nutrition company. He was our, our summer business meeting um, speaker, and I enjoyed him very much and, and remembered him a few years later when I was in the Colorado Ag Leadership Program and we needed a, a keynote speaker for our Governor's Ag Forum. So this past spring, um, Damien and I uh, reconnected and have had some fun in between. Now and then I've been a host on his podcast and it's fun to watch him on social media and hear what he has to say about agriculture. He's a professional speaker, he's a podcaster, um, and now an author. So Damien, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your background, your business, and what you do? Sure. Thanks for having me, Val and Catherine. Uh, yeah, so uh, very, very fortunate to have met you and uh, connecting with the millennials in agriculture. I'm a 50-year-old, so I'm just ahead of you guys. I'm not the evil baby boomer generation. I'm a <laughs> I was born in 1969. I came home from the hospital in northeastern Indiana in my mother's arms to a basic Midwestern dairy farm. Every county road in Huntington County, Indiana had a farm about like ours with your cement stave silo, um, you know, your 60 cow uh, freestall barn. We milked 50 to 60 cows. We farmed about 500 acres and uh, most of it was rented. Uh, basic Midwestern dairy farm upbringing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, from a large family, so people always say, oh, do all the kids work on the farm? Absolutely not. Hell no. Uh, some of us have the farm gene. Some of us do not. About three of us did all the work out of the nine. So um, that's that's kind of the situation. I'm agriculturally educated. I went to Purdue University with a degree in agricultural economics. I never thought I'd be in agriculture. When I was you know, 18, 19 years old, that was my pursuit in college only because that's your background but you know I'd come out of the bad 80s and that's one thing that might differentiate your show being called millennial ag versus maybe the gen xers and the baby boomers you know everybody talks about the 80s and I don't carry on about we walked uphill to school both ways and all that because what does that that doesn't serve any purpose but the one thing that I would always put things in perspective for a younger generation that didn't go through the 80s and ag because the 80s and ag are just a really hot topic things were really really difficult and in our family we didn't have a tremendous amount of capitalization we were not um, a third generation fourth generation farm my, my dad was a herdsman son i mean they, they grew up milking cows for other people so basically sharecroppers um the 80s to put it in perspective is i always say things were so bad banks wouldn't even seize the assets to, to put in perspective things got in many cases the the agricultural operations in some cases were so upside down and backwards uh because of the meltdown and the agricultural economy sometimes the bank wouldn't even repossess because it was it was worse for them to do that than to let them keep going so coming out of that uh, I graduated from Purdue in 1992 and sold lighting products. I'm like, I'm not going to go into agriculture. What the hell's there? It's, there's no, there's no opportunity. There's no future. There's no positive income. And I don't have anything to go back to. I'm not going to go to the farm. And also the companies were hiring. So I never thought I'd be back in agriculture. And, and here I am, you know, now, as you said, Catherine, I, I speak, I write and uh, go around the North America talking about agricultural issues to the people in the business of agriculture. 
And I think my favorite thing that you do with that, Damien, is you inject humor into it too. And I mean, in agriculture, we always need humor, but you bring a lot of fun to your presentations. So that's, I mean, that's one of my favorite things about hearing you speak and seeing what you write. So speaking of what you write, you are coming out with a brand new book just this week or next week, right? Yeah, so a book called Food Fear. Fear is ruining your dinner and why you should celebrate eating comes out uh, this uh, one week from now. And I'm really excited about it. It's my second book here in the year 2019. I've kind of uh, really uh, taken on the writing job pretty seriously. My first book was Do Business Better, which is geared to business owners, which many people are in the business of agriculture, their own business owners, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, self employed. Uh, and then Food Fear, what it took me for a while to come up with this uh, title and then uh, my wife and I are sitting there and I'm like, you know what? It's, it's this really sad situation that the American consumer, any time, any place where food is more abundant and safer than it has ever been because the media needs to get eyeballs. The media needs listeners, subscribers, viewers, listeners, whatnot. They've been programmed to think that somehow there's something sinister in their sustenance. And that's a really sad thing. It's tragic, in fact, for those of us that are in the business of food production and food processing and food transportation and whatever your listeners might be doing in the business of agriculture. It's like, no, no. And I know that you live in Colorado and I live in Phoenix half the year and my farm half the year. Is it true that they spray? The and it's like, no. Is it true? My kids' feet are big. Is it because they're giving all these hormones to the cows? I'm like, no, actually, the guy that milks cows that rents my farmland, uh, his cooperative disallows. Like, he'll be kicked out of the co-op if he, if he, does, if he gives him uh, RBST. But why are my kids' feet so big? Because your kids uh, got uh, big feet. Hell, I don't know. I mean, because uh, they're well-fed. So that's kind of what we address is all those kinds of things that we hear from our consumers. Well, it's, it's perfect that you're here today because um, Valine and I try to address some of these things on our podcast as well. And you've got lots of experience in it and have clearly done a ton of research in writing this book. So um, let's, let's talk more about it. You wrote this book because consumers are afraid of their food in this day and age of abundance and, and, and plentifulness. Why? Why are consumers afraid of, of their food? Why are people afraid of their food? Is it because of the media who need eyeballs and clicks and all that stuff, or is there more behind it? Uh, two reasons. The first, of course, is that the media perpetuates it because they have, uh, they, they know, you yourself said, and I'm going I'm to talk out of school here. Valine, am I okay to talk out of school here? Oh, yeah. You're, you're, go for it. <laughs> okay. Um, we said before we recorded, you said that you have a certain amount of your listeners that like it when there's some controversy to your topic. So let's say you brought on an organic farmer and then had that person pitted against a conventional farmer. Uh, the media has learned the power of controversy. Um, they can put the person that's telling you from Greenpeace that uh, use of glyphosate is the reason that the oceans are dying and then put the person from Bayer Monsanto over here. Media has perpetuated this because to get all of the uh, followers, listeners, subscribers, clickers, viewers that they want, that's one reason. There's another reason that food is feared. Um, and that is purely agricultural ignorance. We are in an industry that says all the time, every one of your listeners has been to an agricultural meeting. They say, we just need to tell our story. <laughs> Bullshit. You know what? 
your story's neat. Your story is sometimes interesting, if it's interesting. But let's face it, the average person in agriculture's story is not that interesting. What do you do? Uh, well, I grew up barley and flax and Alberta. Okay, what else? Uh, I drive my truck around and look at the neighbors. Yeah, okay. Boy, I'm sure glad you told me your story. Okay, so there's that part of it. We also, in this industry, love to say we're going to educate the consumer. We are the only industry that is convinced that somehow we have no problems if we will educate the consumer. And I point out all the time in my presentations, my blogging, my everything, what if the consumer doesn't really care? What if the consumer doesn't really want to be educated? I have a smartphone right here. This is an Apple iPhone 6 or whatever it is. I use the heck out of it. I use it every day, every hour of the day that I'm awake. I use this thing. Do I know how the... The thing actually works. Do I actually know what's inside of this thing? No. Do I care? No. <laughs> Same with the consumer about agriculture. Do you think they need to know the four st uh, the four elements of uh, uh, of a cow's uh, digestive system? Do they think? Do you think that, so? We believe that they need educated about what we do. I'm like, I don't think they really care. They want a story that means them, not you. And they also. They have ignorance, but we're not going to educate our way out of it because they don't care. They're not going without food. Third reason that there is food fear. Media, consumer ignorance. Third one, cause groups. If you're the environmental working group, your entire fundraising, all of the offices you have in San Francisco and in Washington, D.C. are financed by donors and, fund, and, and fundraising. How do you keep people giving you money? You get a press release and you say, this agricultural industry is killing you, but we're protecting you. If you give us money, we'll keep, we'll watch your back. Oh my God, they're spraying chemicals on our apples. Here, money, environmental working group. So those groups are all vested heavily in making money by perpetuating food fear. And that's the, the reason that they exist. I mean, the humane side of the United States doesn't want humane treatment of animals. They want there to be no farm animals. They right. can't say that because that then somebody is going to say, wait a minute, that means there's no eggs, no cheese, no pork chops. Instead, they say, we're looking out for your best interests. We're taking care of these poor animals. And you know, you should be afraid of your food because on these factory farms, they do this, this, and this. But if you give us money to our 250 employees that we have in an office in Washington, D.C., we will cover you. So ignorance, number one. <clears throat> media number two, activist groups number three. That's why people fear their food. So, so and with all of this um, controversy and stuff, do you see that because of social, social media and because of the millennial generation that we tend to fear food more or is it all across the generations? Yeah, it's not a generational thing per se. In other words, if you were with uh, grandma and grandpa, uh, who are from the suburbs of uh, Secaucus, New Jersey, that have never been on a farm. They would be just as food ignorant and as influenced by the media, in fact, more so. We all know, uh, you're visiting people over your Thanksgiving holiday, that grandma and grandpa might say, oh, you just can't trust your food. I read this. I saw this. Okay, so Reader's Digest and, uh, and Fox News said some ridiculous thing that, you, you know, is not accurate. So it's not a generational component in terms of the media influence. And it's also not a 
a, a generational thing. You know, there'll be some old person. I wrote in my newsletter that I released here this week. Uh, you know, when Aunt Gertrude says something like, you just can't trust your food because it comes from some whatever made up thing that they heard. It's not a generational thing. The millennials, the one thing, because if you do your research about your own generation and, and uh, the post-millennials, the Gen Z, they want there to be more of a personal component to it. They have been so uh, catered to um, through all of the media and also the marketing that, and, and you know, we joke about avocado toast and all that kind of stuff. There's a component of young people that they have been more catered to. They want food to be more catered to them. So the fear part of it is going to be there forever. It's just that they expect it to be about them because after all, marketing has gotten to where it is all about them. So let's go back. You just said that fear is going to be there forever. Is that, I mean, wishful thinking in agriculture in my deepest, darkest corner of my heart where I think everything is rainbows and roses. There's no way to fix this. There's no way to combat it. There's no way to, to, to try and help people understand. I mean, I know we talked about, um, the, the arrogance of saying that people just need to be educated. And I completely agree with that statement. And we've gone about it the entirely wrong way, but fear is always going to be there. That's what you think. Fear is a base level human uh, emotion. You know, the old thing, okay, I got, I, I've been on a stage talking for a living. I started out in political comedy. I didn't even know what I knew back 25 years ago when I got on the stage and was uh, starting out doing political comedy. But if you can touch every element of the human experience, and so the old thing then that uh, you you learn when you are a, a stage person, there's four human emotions, mad, sad, glad, fear. Mad, sad, glad, fear. Can you make your audience mad? Can you make them sad? Can you make them glad? Can you get into fear? Well, really, when you look at it, that's the angle for most of the of, of anything that uh, is trying to be sold, whether it's media or, again, if it's uh, I'm on the organic food industry, for instance, okay? I have no problem with organic food. Organic food is about five. It's, it's not even about. It's 5.7% of our groceries. Right now, in the United States of America, mostly produce, and then there, there's the, some milk products and egg products. 5.7% of America's groceries are organic. What bothers me, you and everybody involved is like, oh, you're anti-organic. I'm like, no, again, you went down to the usual of base level me against them. I'm not against organic. I'm against organic food fear mongering that is done by the industry to command a price premium. A higher price. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when they say, well, it's better for you. I'm like, there is actually no scientific evidence uh, to, to back that up. Well, it's more nutritious. No, there's no uh, evidence to back that up. It's better for the environment. Actually, I can tell you it's not better for the environment because uh, while we didn't use pesticides, we used organically approved pesticides and also we used more diesel fuel uh, because we had to go out there and, and we also tilled the shit out of the ground. And you know what that does? That opens up for emotion. So um, one thing that I... One thing that I have uh, pointed out is that fear is a base level human instinct. And so, for instance, going off the rails here about organic, they use fear and tell people, you know what, you're being killed by conventional agriculture. So fear works. You know, fear kept us from being eaten by the saber-toothed tiger when we were in our caveman and cavewoman uh, uh, 
development of evolution. It's just that it still works, it still touches. So again, mad, sad, glad, fear, it seems as though every element of selling or getting you to tune in or getting you to pay a premium is motivated by the fear. How do we, how do we, this is probably part of your book topic, but how do we overcome that fear in our consumer or do we market or do we jump on the bandwagon and market towards it as production? Yeah. Of course, the gist of the book is telling uh, the consumer, you know, I wrote it for two people. I said, this book is for everybody, all my compadres in the business of agriculture. And then for everybody that's dependent on the business of agriculture, which of course is everyone because everyone eats. And um, by the way, I also don't go down that road. This is one of Catherine and I's hot little topics here, Val. <laughs> I don't go on telling them they need to thank us. Uh, that, that that wears itself out. today, thank a farmer. Well, you know what else I did? I paid taxes and you just went down to the USDA office and got a, a subsidy. So uh, let's, let's, let's put thanks going both ways here, all right? <laughs> Being very honest being very honest and that might piss people off, but it's being very honest. You know, agriculture's had more money thrown at it in the last two years than the auto bailout of 10 years ago. And uh, a lot of people in agriculture don't want to admit that, but that is a reality. Agriculture, by the way, gets money thrown at it because it's a form of national defense. Food in abundance, food in great supply, uh, food is endlessly produced and provided, keeps a prosperous country prosperous. So anyway, how do we address the fear thing? This little side note now. How do we address food fear? Well, first off, we don't play into it. You know, um, my whole thing is being just that. I don't think we need to get into the weeds of science because Catherine's husband is a vocational agricultural instructor. He probably goes in there and tells those kids, I'm sure he works really hard at it and says, hey, here's the thing about the six elements of nutrition. Here's the thing about this. That's fine. That's good. We get it. Our consumers don't. So I don't think you address it with science. I think you address it by being very simple and saying, no, here's the reality. So my book goes through the whole thing and I say, hey, you remember Bluebell ice cream? Three years ago, a couple people died. God, that's tragic. Just tragic. Just sorry, sorry, sorry that happened. Ten people were hospitalized. A couple people died. Oh, man. Bluebell ice cream is the third largest ice cream manufacturer in the United States of America. It's distributed in 22 states. People eat ice cream every single day. Humans <laughs> eat every single day. We have 330 million people. So I can very simply address food fear with not getting too hard into the science. You know, Val and Catherine, I can say, guess what? 3,000 people died last year because of foodborne illness. That's tragic. We're sorry. Now, about half of those were because of how they handled it. The fact that uh, they left it sitting on the counter uh, and didn't cook it right, whatever. So even that, 3,000 people died from food. That is a risk rate of nine ten thousandths of 1%. Okay, in the United States of America, with 330 million people, 3,000 people died last year. To put that in perspective, it's a risk rate of nine ten thousandths of one percent, about like uh, hitting the billion lottery. Okay, your risk rate of of dying from not eating, 100 percent. Risk rate of uh, dying from food, nine ten thousandths of one percent. So I think that we can do that without getting too into the science, without getting too into the weeds of confusion. Say, stop fearing your food. Uh, you don't get you don't get contaminated. You don't die from eating. So I hear a lot, especially I live in Fort Collins right now, and the up and coming urban development and stuff that they're not so much worried about their food 
harming them today or tomorrow, but it's down the road. It's heart disease. It's cancer. It's all these things that they're associating with food. And so how do we address that? Because it's the fear of me getting E. coli from chicken is minimal, um, but maybe I'm more concerned about getting cancer from the pesticides that are being applied to my lettuce. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big one because, uh, you know, I, I commonly reference uh, things like Dr. Oz or Oprah or whatever, you know, uh, uh, one of my chapters in my book is called Oprah's Beef. Uh, she had on a guy uh, that um, 1996. So you talk about generational stuff. Here I am talking about what happened in 1996 and your listeners are going like, um, yeah, like that's when I was born, man. Well, come on, dude, get with it. All right. Um, and that was also a stoned millennial. I just, uh, I just mimicked right there. Yeah, dude. Okay. okay. Here's the thing. Uh, Oprah had on a vegan activist, uh, from Montana who had been a rancher at one point in his life, a vegan activist in 1996 said to her audience that mad cow disease was going to plague the United States beef industry and would make AIDS look like the common cold. All right. She turns to the camera and says, that does it. I'm off beef. No more hamburger, no more cheeseburgers for me. Well, she's got millions of followers, millions of listeners, millions of viewers back in 1996. So the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and a, uh, another group out of Texas in the beef industry sued her. They lost. They lost to Oprah. She went to Lubbock uh, and, uh, I'm sorry, Amarillo, Amarillo. Uh, and filmed her show from there for like six months, and she just crusaded as I'm the free speech advocate by God. I'm out here. Uh, she won. Um, so where am I going with all this? I'm going with all this that in 1996, people were told to fear their food, and they were told misinformation. Now, that was about disease risk. By the way, that never happened in in the, in the 23 years since 1996, when that man said that we were going to have the vegan activist, non-scientist, non-food industry expert told America that mad cow disease would make AIDS look like the common cold, whatever that means, we've had six cases, six cases of mad cow disease in 23 years in a U.S. beef herd that totals about 90 million head of cattle. So completely misinformed. So now you're going the other direction. You're saying, what about these people being told? Val, you said, what about people being told? Great example is right after Oprah's beef in the same section of my book, I talk about Eisenhower's heart attacks and the history of bad dietary advice. President Eisenhower, 1950s, his doctor said, you were having heart attacks. You know what? It must be this thing I've been reading about by Dr. Keyes. Dr. Keyes was the Dr. Oz of his time, a complete fraud, an absolute uh, charlatan. And he went to, uh, the, to Europe and <clears throat> found seven countries. The Mediterranean diet. You've all heard of the Mediterranean diet. That's all because of Dr. Keyes, this basic Dr. Oz of the 1950s, who found seven countries that fit his already preconceived notion of dietary uh, intake and health. And so it's like, like, hey, I believe that only dairy farm girls who were born in Connecticut and moved to Utah uh, who are redheaded um, know this. And then I find Catherine as my example. And I just say, oh, see, I already, I, I knew that because I did the research. Like, no, you already had a preconceived notion. You went and found the one that fits you. Well, that's what he did with the seven country study. 
President Eisenhower is a very popular president, and he's got the media behind him. He's having heart attacks. So he sits with his diet because he says, cholesterol is killing me. It's got to be the bacon. So by God, you get that going, and you get this Dr. Keys guy who's like the Dr. Oz of his time, and then you get like Crisco. Makers of Crisco said, yeah, you know what? You shouldn't use lard. You should use Crisco because it's making the money to say that. President Eisenhower kept having heart attacks. <laughs> he switched <laughs> off of cholesterol, and he kept having heart attacks. President Eisenhower was also an old man. President Eisenhower also had been the general in charge of the European theater of World War II. So if you're in charge of taking out Adolf Hitler, you probably have had some stress in your life, right? If you won World War II, you probably had a stressful career. And then you're the president, kind of a stressful career. Oh, one other thing. He was a four-pack-a-day smoker. Nope, it's got to be the bacon. The reason you're having heart attacks is because of the bacon. So what we have, to go back to your prior thing, is people are being told this, and it's utter and complete nonsense. Or, to use a millennial term, it's bullshit. It's complete and utter <laughs> bullshit. They're being told this. They're being told this, and they think, yeah, I heard that if you eat bacon, it's going to kill me 25 years from now. Well, maybe, but the fact that you haven't gotten off your ass because you just sit there and look at your screen time all day, you look at your, your cell phone for 14 hours, you know it's going to kill you faster than a slice of bacon? The fact that you couldn't walk up those slightest stairs right there without being winded. That's where we got to come at it with a real straight talk, and that's kind of my, uh, my thing. As Catherine knows, I deliver straight information that I think is consumable to consumers by being straight. I would just like to note for the record that we did not coin the term bullshit, but we do definitely use it as millennials. <laughs> <laughs> the best part, in my opinion, you, you, you've brought up the generational thing, Catherine, a couple of times, and Val has as well. I think the great thing about the millennial generation is that they seem to have a better bullshit factor. You know, I, I can talk about Aunt Gertrude or the folks that are at your Thanksgiving table. They still believe the media. And I don't know that the millennials on down, I think they're a bit more of a suspect, a suspicion, a bit more of a, again, a bullshit meter. And I, I like that. So when people say, oh, the millennials are a bunch of lazy kids, I don't get into any of that. You know, I, I don't pull that stuff. I actually am probably harsher on the baby boomers than anybody because, uh, you know, hey, just because you uh, burned your draft card doesn't mean you changed the world. And by the way, the Beatles, oh my God, every baby boomer in the Beatles, baby boomer Beatles, I'm like, okay, four dudes from England that had a couple of good songs, get over it, done, fine, yeah, you know, you didn't change the world by burning your draft card and listening to the Beatles' White Album, shut the f*** up, <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's kind of where I am with that whole thing. Well, I have to say we appreciate a little bit of millennial love because we have, uh, we have, we, we've gotten, we've had enough of millennials are lazy and, and don't have jobs and all that good stuff because no, that's a, that's a bunch of utter nonsense. Uh, I mean, there's a one thing, I guess the, the one thing since you are the millennial ag program, the one thing that I think is maybe the generational difference. That's maybe not positive. I think there's a sensitivity. There's a sensitivity to, and, and it's because that's how we became as a society. There's a sensitivity toward everything that something is discriminatory it's hateful you know i heard this thing well you're shaming me i'm like i don't even know what that means i'm shaming you i'm telling you the truth what, what does that mean i don't even know what shaming means so that's the one thing about the millennial and post-millennials that i have observed is there's a a tremendous amount of sensitivity and i kind of want to say hey listen guys 
I'm not picking on you. I don't think you're lazy living in your parents' basement, all that stuff. I would just say you probably need to toughen up a little bit because no, I'm not shaming or hating or hating on or any of those things. I'm just giving you information. And uh, I'd say that's the one thing. But growth and maturity comes to where I probably get a little more sensitive myself. And then your, your group is going to say, yeah, yeah, I was a little oversensitive to that. And that's fine. Yeah, just comes from growth and more experiences. And um, I think not letting ourselves get stuck in in some of these, you know, cultural uh, ideas that are prominent right now. So, um, Damien, we have had an incredible time with you. We wish that we could have, you know, three more hours to talk with you about food fear and your new book and, and all of your opinions and insights in agriculture. But um, <clears throat> we do have to wrap up here. So first off, tell us, where and when listeners can find your new book um, and your writing and all of that good stuff. Yeah. So uh, go to DamianMason.com. That's D-A-M-I-A-N, DamianMason.com. I'm very searchable and very findable. We spend a, we spend a certain amount of money keeping ourselves uh, uh, available and findable. DamianMason.com. There's a link right there that can find Food Fear. Uh, and I would like everybody to read it. It'll be available in audio about two weeks after the print releases. So we've got it available as a print hard copy, hardcover book right now. It's a hardcover book. It's got a cool title. It's got a cool cover. Cover has uh, the hand uh, holding a tomato uh, within a back shadow of a uh, shadow goblin monster. And uh, my wife and I loved that. Our designer came up with that. I said, you know, I hope that folks get it. We're basically saying something that's as innocuous as a tomato, something that is just as harmless as a piece of food. But what have we done to it? We've demonized it. We've bastardized it. We've politicized it. We've weaponized it. We've turned it into something it is not. So go to DamianMason.com to find Food Fear. Um, and, uh, you, you know, the audio version, a lot of your people are probably sales folks or maybe farmers. They're in their car or their truck a lot. In about a couple weeks, they'll also be able to get the audio version of it at DamianMason.com. And it's, all, of course, also available on Kindle. Uh, the good thing about this one, as opposed to my last book, which I was not the voice talent on my last book. This one is me talking. So it sounds <laughs> like me. And if your listeners have enjoyed my straight scoop and between using swear words and giving straight, honest uh, discussion, there will also be my talk. So I would like people to listen to it. I'd like people to share it. The better part is I'm going to tell my ag people and your ag people on the millennial ag program, don't just buy one copy, buy at least two, one for you and one for the person that you visited with at Thanksgiving that said, I heard that the China is dead. I heard that. No, no. Wrong. No. I don't, you can't trust your food anymore because it's all imported from Ecuador. No, that's not true. Only shrimp. Uh, by the way, you're wrong. I heard it. No, no, absolutely wrong. Here, just take this book. So I, everybody needs to buy two copies, and that way they don't need to say, uh, I don't know how to answer this person. I'll tell you how to answer this person. Give them Damien Mason's book, Food Fear. And the good news for our listeners on that is that Millennial Ag will be giving away two copies. So um, follow us on Facebook and Instagram um, in the next couple of weeks, and we'll have a couple giveaways and shout outs for Damien on his new book, Food Fear. Damien, we are so excited that you've, you've joined us today. Loved the conversation. Again, we, could, we wish that we could have more time, but um, understand that you have some other commitments. So um, good luck with, with 
um, your new book coming out and we'd love to have you back sometime. Yes. Thank you, Damien. Hey Val, uh, appreciate having you, uh, and having me on. I appreciate it. Catherine, thank you as always, you know, uh, appreciate you dragging this 50 year old in to be part of millennial ag and yeah, I mean, it's been great for all of us. We agree. We'd like to think that millennials can be friends with people besides millennials. <laughs> we have to learn from the generations that have already spent a few years learning all the tough stuff. So yeah, you guys are good. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. Feel free to reach out to us, provide feedback, and submit your questions. Our email address is Catherine at millennialag.com. That is Kit. Catherine with a K A T H A R I N E. And please follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Also, rate us on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>